The creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science, neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method, and in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation. Welcome to our podcast. Well, good morning, afternoon, or evening from St. Louis, Missouri. Whenever you're listening, thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Marv Schaefer. I'm the president of the Missouri Association for Creation. Today we have a special episode of the Show Me Creation podcast. I'm here with Zach Klein, who's one of our board members and a speaker for our Missouri Association for Creation. He's going to share with us an interview and an audio special of a Missouri-based creation documentary that he contributed to along with our friend uh, Dan Tuck. Zach, give us a little context on what we're going to hear today. Absolutely. Great to be back with you, Marv. So this uh, creation documentary, or virtual field trip, we call it, is entitled Missouri's Mastodon Graveyard. And the project is based on Mastodon State Historic Site, which is a, uh, it's not technically a state park, but it's it's a developed uh, historic site visitor center, hiking trails, that sort of thing. And it's it's like right uh, just south on 55, not yep. too far, right? Yeah, about 45 minutes or so south of St. Louis, right off of Interstate 55. Very easy to get to. Great place for hiking and recreation and a very informative, uh, small visitor center. They've got some really cool fossils and displays in there, of course, all from an evolutionary uh, point of view. And uh, what Dan and I wanted to do is, and this was based on a field trip that we produced here at Mac that we've given a couple of times. And uh, Dan Tuck, our, our friend uh, from Visual Time Capsule Productions is his company. Um, he had the idea of turning this into a video production. And so he and I spent some time out there. We shot video on location, going down some of the trails, talking about some of the discoveries that were made at the historic site. So it's called Mastodon Historic Site because right. Mastodon bones were discovered there, right. as well as other uh, artifacts indicating that, that humans were living and hunting these mastodons, which is right. very it, fascinating. It, it was interesting too, kind of the, I hate to use the word evolution, but the evolution of what they believed about what this animal was yes, and everything, yes. right? That was a, a funny uh, historical tidbit uh, as I was learning about this site uh, when they when these uh, wasn't scientists, but when the explorers first discovered the mastodon bones, no one knew what they were. And the first person to actually display the the bones, he, yeah, he merged, got it all wrong. Well, he, he merged several animals together <laughs> and he created a monster that he called the Missouri Leviathan. And it was actually Sir Richard Owen, who some of ah. our creation groupies will know. This is the man who coined the term dinosaur, a uh, very famous, um, actually uh, a Christian and, and arguably a creationist. A biologist and one of the first people to really study dinosaur fossils, um, he recognized that this fossil was all mixed up, and he purchased it from the uh, gentleman, the the Missouri gentleman, and put it back together properly. And it's actually now in the uh, British Museum. Ah, I just, awesome! I had a chance to see it. So it's like early Legos. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right, well, Zach, um, I'll let you get to the interview. Let's do uh, it. Look forward to hearing it. Thank you, Marv. I'm in the studio now with Dan Tuck. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us a few words about yourself and how you got into making creation-based YouTube documentaries recently. What's uh, what's up with all that? Uh, well, I'm actually a convert to Christianity. 
since 1998. My inroads was the creation evolution debate. Wow. I had a coworker when I was working at Christian Hospital that uh, cleaned my clock when I tried to debate him. You know, <laughs> as Marv talks about somebody putting a rock in your shoe. Mm-hmm. And I won't get too into the story here, but uh, yeah, I'd been around Mac for a little while back then, just around 1998, 1999. Then I kind of moved on from there, ended up with a government job after 9-11 and got more into the political stuff. And But I, what I did somewhere in the course of that, I started a little side business with uh, Visual Time Capsule Productions. And I started that I registered the name in 2014, and I actually launched in 2018. My goal was to make a video biography business. So, okay, you know, your grandpa who served in World War II and whatnot, and you want to preserve his words for generations to come. You know, that was the idea was hmm. to get his story in video and yeah. his face and, and get some other things added together. That's the visual time capsule. That was visual yeah, time like capsule it. productions. However... I have yet to serve a client for that purpose. (laughs) What everybody saw on my business card was video transfers and people are realizing, you know, I got this old VHS tape for family memories. And so that's really where visual time capsule productions has made any money is that, you know, so I still have my full time normal job and Mm -hmm. and I'm doing visual time capsule productions on the side. Well, at some point we decided to take a family vacation out to uh, the Ark Encounter. In mm-hmm. 2019, you know, our youngest was old enough now to finally get something out of a family vacation. And I remember I hadn't heard from Mac in years mm-hmm. and years and years and years. And I actually, all of a sudden on Facebook, I saw actually your field guide okay. for Macedon State Historic Site. And then your uh, little expedition to look for the great incontinuity. Great unconformity. Uh, great unconformity. Yeah. I'm not a scientist, people. I was a MassCom major. <laughs> and so that was all bouncing around in my head when I was at uh, at the Ark Encounter and I was looking at the presentations and the multimedia. And I don't know if it's Holy Spirit inspiration, midlife crisis. Combination. Heart, heart combination of all. But it just kind of like I had always had kind of a passion for wanting to get my multimedia firepower into the creation evolution arena. Yeah. And all of a sudden it occurs to me, you know what? I'm in my 40s. If I'm not going to do it now, when am I going to do this? (laughs) And I think it was because I saw those guides that occurred to me, okay, you know, Ken Ham and all those, you know, big shots in the movement have picked apart Grand Canyon and Mm -hmm. Mount St. Helen left and right and you know, it's a global flood. There should be stuff yep. right here in Missouri. And that's when I got back home and I uh, decided to uh, throw a message out there, which I believe you were the. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember manager. that. Yes, yes. And so I remember we, that's in the sense of one thing should, people should note here that when I plug back in, we started shooting on Mastodon right after Missouri opened up. That's after right. After the pandemic lockdowns. That's right. Yeah. We went out there and spent the better part of an afternoon. And I think we even did a second time around to patch in a few pieces and uh, just kind of going through the park and, and doing the exposition. I remember we had a lot of microphone um, yeah, we, trouble. I was, uh, I'm more of a uh, post-production guy. I'm sure. a better post-production guy than I am a, a production 
you know, so it's so the mic was a little hot. I had to really work that. But uh, the reason we had to come around the second time actually was because at the time that we did this, the museum part was closed. Oh, that's right. Yes. It was right after Missouri opened. Right. The visitor center was still shut down. Yeah. So the state was generally open. The uh, the bigger cities were still generally locked down for the most part. And yeah, so we were as some of the issues that were going on when we started shooting on this in 2020. Wow. Yeah, I loved how, so through that all, we, we of course, we shot the footage at the park, kind of doing a virtual field trip um, through um, the the various trails and the various points of interest. And then, of course, you got in contact, and I guess I helped put you in contact with some people, and you got to actually get some creationist experts, such as Paul Garner and uh, Mike Ord, uh, Todd Wood, and you were able to get their contributions as well and make that part of what really made it a full documentary and not just a, you know, camera along the trail uh, program. Right. No, well, this is something that was kind of liberating about the pandemic is before the pandemic, I would never dream of trying to use a Zoom interview mm-hmm. or a WebEx or whatever in a video production. I just would never have done it. You know, you always try to get in person so you can control the environment, you can control the audio. And but, you know, I was like, well, I could sit here and wonder when all this is going to lift and we can just put this off for a year or two. And it's like, no, it just occurred to me Zoom was so prevalent at that point. You know, it it was normal now. So nobody was really going to look and ask us. Now, I have to say that I'm glad to be with some of our future pieces getting into in-person interviews again because you know paul garner and todd wood were pros at this you know i think uh i don't know i think it was right about the time we were starting production on mastodon that they were starting to do their let's talk creation podcast That's right yep and the nice part with that is both of them had the backgrounds that everybody was familiar with because they're doing this on zoom Mm -hmm. and um and actually, Todd was a little more. The trouble with Zoom is it makes too small of a video. Oh, sure. Nice part is Todd was keen enough on that that he decided to just take my questions, answer them independently, and then send me the video clip. So we got some nice. Nice. Mike Ord was a challenge. And the reason he was a challenge was because the room that he was sitting in, I was talking to him. It was nighttime where I was at, but it was the sun was setting. And that sunlight was coming right through (laughs) and it was moving as we were talking. And so that's where, that's where the post-production skills really come in. (laughs) Wow. Well, the finished product was excellent. I have to say, of course, I I have to excuse my own role in that as far as uh, being the the host. It's always a little, little cringy watching yourself in a, in a documentary as, as the narrator. But I have to tell you, Zach, uh, when people that have seen it, and I've even shown this to people I know that are nominal or non-believers and who've liked it. Wow. And you know, the two people they're the biggest fans of, Paul Garner and you. Wow. Well, <laughs> I won't let that go to my head. <laughs> but no, seriously, thank you for both the insight into kind of the, the backstory of how this project came to be. Um, and it's still the by far the most watched video on the Missouri Association for Creation YouTube channel. And we'll have the link there in the show notes. But I think it'll be good just to let uh, folks uh, listen in and get to hear the the audio track of Missouri's Mastodon Graveyard. Thank you again, Dan, for all the work you put in into shooting and producing this project. And yeah, I hope that our listeners will enjoy it. All right. Me too. 
What were the Mastodons? Who were the first explorers of the Americas? And how does the Ice Age fit into the biblical framework of ancient history? Join Zachary Klein and the Missouri Association for Creation as they explore these topics at the Macedon State Historical Site. Mastodon State Historic Site, about 25 miles south of St. Louis, marks one of Missouri's most important paleontological and archeological sites for understanding the Ice Age and early human history in North America. Established in 1976, work at this site has actually continued since the mid 19th century. In this video, we're gonna give you a short tour of this historic site and connect some of the discoveries that were made here with the biblical history and account of Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel. Mastodon State Historic Site, about 25 miles south of St. Louis, marks one of Missouri's most important archeological and paleontological sites for understanding the Ice Age and early human history in North America. While the park here was founded in 1987, scientific work at the site has continued since the early 1900s with some surprises along the way. In this video, we're gonna give you a short tour of this historic site and connect some of the findings that were made here with the Bible's account of early earth and human history. The discoveries here at Mastodon State Historic Site go back to 1839 when Albert Koch, a local exhibitor and fair owner, got heard reports of large mammal bones being dug up from the banks of the river, not too far from this location. When Albert Koch arrived and began excavating these bones, he realized quickly that they were from a large prehistoric animal. However, not being a paleontologist or a biologist, he did not realize what animal he was excavating. Over the course of a year, Albert Koch excavated at least two American mastodons, a ground sloth, and other Ice Age animals. He then assembled these bones to create an animal that he named the Missouri Leviathan. Now the Missouri Leviathan, of course, is not a real creature. It was about twice the size of an American mastodon, the actual skeleton that Albert Koch was digging up. Albert Koch also developed some interesting history for this animal. He proposed that it hung from floating logs in the river by tilting its head up and hanging from its tusks. Additionally, he said that it was killed by an asteroid impact, because why not? In 1844, Albert Koch took his show on the road and ended up in London, where he exhibited the Missouri Leviathan to crowds of fans. Sir Richard Owen of the British Museum, most famous for coining the term dinosaur, observed the exhibition and realized what was going on. Sir Richard Owen purchased the skeleton from Albert Koch, reassembled it, and put it on display where it is today in the British Museum as the Kimswick Mastodon, a beautiful specimen of the American Mastodon that lived in this continent during the Ice Age. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, paleontological work continued here at this site. Additional bones were discovered, as well as some important archeological discoveries that would link the American Mastodon with early human history. Finally, in 1987, the state park was established to protect the site as the construction of Interstate 55 developed nearby. So what exactly is a Mastodon? Mastodons are often confused with their relative, the woolly mammoth. In fact, mammoths are actually larger than mastodons and had a very different diet. Mastodons tended to graze on, on shrubs and trees, tree branches. 
Woolly mammoths then are more associated with the grasslands of ancient Siberia. At the visitor center here at the historic site, mastodons, mammoths, Asian and African elephants, and other extinct members of the Proboscidea family are assembled together into what's called an evolutionary tree with a common ancestor from which all the various subspecies of Proboscidea animals descended. How do we look at this as biblical creationists? So creationists have developed a new taxonomic term, the baramin, taken from the Hebrew word bara for create and mean for kind. A baramin or a created kind represents the original created type of animal that God created in the beginning. What baraminologists do is that they seek to apply a range of different criteria from um, hybridization studies uh, to statistical analyses based on the morphology, the overall shape and form of, of living creatures, to try to identify um, continuity, evidence of continuity between different species. And in most cases, at least among the vertebrates, which is probably where we've done most uh, work, the created kind seems to be roughly equivalent to what um, we would call the family in the standard Linnaean taxonomy. So people may be familiar with uh, the standard um, taxonomic hierarchy. So we have species. Uh, species are then uh, grouped together into uh, genera. Uh, genera are grouped together into families, families in, into orders, orders into classes, and so on. Now, in the case of the... Um, elephants, uh, and I'm using that, that term in the broadest <laughs> sense, um, we're actually dealing with an entire order. So not a family, but an entire order called the Proboscidea. And within the Proboscidea, we actually have multiple families of elephants. The Ice Age mammoths, uh, now they're interesting because they actually were members of the Elephantidae. So they are, in effect, members of the same family as the living elephants. So they are uh, almost certainly members of the same created kind. And uh, that kind would have been represented on the ark. And when uh, that group of elephants came off the ark, they diversified into the different species of elephants that we have today, and also the mammoths. So that's uh, one of those families. The mastodons, however, uh, actually belong to a different family. Um, they're a separate family. Uh, they may look superficially similar in some respects to the mammoths, but the mastodons actually have some uh, differences to mammoths. They're, they're shorter, they're stockier, they have shorter, straighter tusks. Um, they were more adapted for browsing, whereas the mammoths were grazers. They were sort of living on grasslands. So there are some differences. And so they appear to be, in fact, a separate created kind to the, to the mammoths. So what was the Ice Age? Conventionally, there, there are believed to have been as many as 50 periods of glaciation or ice ages. In these periods, ice is said to have accumulated in the northern parts of the continents and then advanced southward, covering much of North America, Europe and Asia. Now, the most, most of the direct evidence for an ice age is only of the most recent period of glaciation, which is again conventionally believed to have been about 100,000 to 30,000 years ago. How do we square this with the Bible's time frame? Well, of course, 
creationists would not accept the absolute ages for the Ice Age and would generally propose that there was only ever that one last Ice Age, as opposed to there being 40 or 50. But the conditions for an Ice Age are rather contradictory. To develop an Ice Age, you need to have more precipitation, more rain and therefore more snowfall. To get that, you need more evaporation, more water from the oceans entering the atmosphere to condense and fall as rain and snow. However, in addition to warm conditions for evaporation, to get an ice age, you need cold conditions over the continents. What could both cool the land and warm the sea? This contradiction has hampered attempts to explain the ice age in terms of purely naturalistic phenomenon. However, the biblical flood offers a potential key to this otherwise pu puzzling dilemma. You see, in Genesis 7, chapter 11, we read that at the beginning of the flood, the fountains of the great deep were broken apart. Creation scientists believe that this is referring to a volcanic and tectonic event occurring in the oceans and therefore producing large quantities of heat, of volcanism, of magma, and other volcanic phenomenon starting in the oceans. The Ice Age climate was had mild winters, but cool summers. And the, the reason for that, on land, you would cool the summers by all the residual volcanic ash and aerosols and meteorite impact debris left in the stratosphere. And it affect mainly the summers. It wouldn't affect the winters at all. This cooling effect due to volcanism has been known to happen even in modern times. Volcanic eruptions often lead to a drop in global temperature. Worldwide volcanic activity at the time of the flood could lead to worldwide continental cooling immediately after the flood, while the ocean waters would still retain their excess heat from that same volcanism. The warmer the sea surface temperatures, the more the evaporation. During the ice age, it could have been say 25 to 30 degrees centigrade, 30 degrees centigrade being 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can give off huge amount of water vapor at mid and high latitudes from the oceans. Mild winters and, and cool summers with little seasonal contrast. That's the climate that results in rapid uh, deposition of snow at the high latitudes and in some places in the mid latitudes and in the in the mountains, starting with the high mountains and then lowering with time. Even tropical mountains were glaciated about 3,000 feet lower than the, than the glacial line today. So timing the cooling of the ocean, three quarters by evaporation, one quarter by contact of cooler air from land flowing over the warmer water, uh, the water will warm the air, but that air will cool the top of the ocean. And so I can time it uh, based on uh, estimates of uh, what the paleoclimate was like during the Ice Age. And so based on that timing, I estimated that the Ice Age was approximately 500 years to reach glacial maximum. And then it took about 200 years to melt after that. Here, at the end of the wildflower trail, we see this concrete pad that marks one of the dig sites where the bones of American mastodons and other Ice Age animals were uncovered. These uh, dig sites stretch along the wildflower trail, usually marked by either concrete or some other uh, disturbed earth. 
When scientific uh, research ended in this location, the bone bed was buried to protect it from vandalism and from theft and to preserve it for future excavation if funding and interest develops. Now the bones here at Mastodon State Historic Site are conventionally dated to be anywhere from 12 to 15,000 years old. The Ice Age is believed to have taken place between 100 to 30,000 years ago. These dates are generally derived using radiocarbon or carbon-14 dating. Well, speaking of radiocarbon specifically, these sorts of dates require a calibration, a correlation between the amount and kind of carbon in the atmosphere with the amount of carbon you find in a given bone. Knowing that correlation is very important to getting an accurate date, which is why radiocarbon dates are very accurate in recent history, where we have direct data for how much carbon is currently in the atmosphere or how much carbon was in the atmosphere 100 years ago. As you go farther back in time, however, we do not have that kind of data. And if you do not have an accurately calibrated radiocarbon curve representing the carbon in the atmosphere, your date is going to be progressively inflated as you go back in time. Uh, carbon-14 is produced in the upper atmosphere of the Earth. Uh, when cosmic rays, which are continually bombarding the upper atmosphere, um, they, they produce subatomic particles called neutrons. And these neutrons collide with atoms of nitrogen-14, which is a very abundant gas in the atmosphere. And uh, the nitrogen-14 uh, gets converted to carbon-14. After it forms, uh, carbon-14 then decays back into uh, nitrogen-14. Uh, the neutron breaks down into a proton and an electron, um, and the electron is ejected. Um, it's a process called beta decay. And we know that this process happens in um, such a way that it has a half-life of 5,730 years. We can basically use this process uh, as a dating method to date how old organic samples such as fossil bones are or fossil shells are. If the carbon-14 has formed at a constant rate in the Earth's atmosphere for a very long time, but notice that we've made some important assumptions, right? We've assumed that the production rate of carbon-14 has always been the same in the Earth's past as it is today. And we've also assumed that the biosphere has the same proportion of carbon-14 to carbon-12 in the past as we measure today. And in fact, um, these assumptions are, you know, are very questionable, certainly in the creation model. So in the creation model, for example, uh, we think there's very good reason uh, to, to understand that the Earth's magnetic field has um, been progressively um, getting weaker over time. So in the past, it was much stronger. And the reason this is important is because uh, a stronger magnetic field would have um, would basically have shielded the Earth more effectively from the cosmic rays that are producing carbon-14 in the atmosphere. And so, uh, in effect, the biosphere would have had a lower carbon-14 concentration in the past, if that were the case. Also, of course, in the creation model, um, we have to take into account the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. Uh, during the flood, a huge amount of um, carbon from the pre-flood biosphere was um, destroyed, was buried uh, 
uh, and we find it today in in the um, rock record as coal and oil and gas and limestones and other fossil materials. So a huge amount of carbon was was actually removed from the biosphere and and buried at, at the time of the flood. While you can only date organic remains, not rocks, uh, coal is an excellent sample to date through radiocarbon. However, the coal layers in the rock record have a peculiar a characteristic in that no matter what their supposed age, be it 300 million years to 100 million years, coal seams in Missouri and elsewhere in the Midwest all date to roughly 35 to 40,000 years according to conventional radiocarbon. Now this is significant because it means that all of the rock records coal seams represent plants that according to radiocarbon lived at the same time. Now both of those things, the stronger magnetic field uh, and the burial of all of this organic carbon at the time of the flood, both have the same effect, which is to, in effect, give erroneously old ages for um, fossil samples, given the assumption that the carbon-14, carbon-12 proportion has always been the same and the production rate has always been the same. Bearing in mind what we know about the Earth's past and the... You know, the, these facts of a stronger magnetic field, the burial of all of this organic carbon at the time of the flood, uh, we need to devise a way that then allows us to recalibrate the, the radiocarbon dates. And it will mean that those, those dates actually are much younger than they appear to be in the old Earth model. So the settlement of North and South America are pretty much understood to be the last events in this early human history. So it's about 6,600 miles from where the Tower of Babel probably took place in the land between the rivers, Mesopotamia, uh, until you get to Western Alaska, walking across the Bering Land Bridge. And that's just the gateway to the Americas, right? That's just the start. So just to get to the door, 6,600 miles. Now, people who do long through hikes on the Appalachian Trail they typically want to do between 10 and 15 miles a day. If you really try in a hurry, you might want to do it 20 miles a day. That is a lot of hiking. That is hard, hard going. And so, uh, going at that rate, assuming that you could go at that rate, it would take you about a year and a half-ish to go from Mesopotamia to Western Alaska simply by hiking. Now, people at those, in those days could not have done that, of course, because they don't have grocery stores and supply chains and so forth. They had to get their own food. They had to get their own supplies. So it would have taken them longer. And nobody's, I don't imagine the post-flood period and the post-flood people dispersing like that. I imagine they're going to be moving along in um, ways that make some sense, <laughs> right? So they're going to move uh, in a way that is more like a dispersal which is you settle down in a place for a while and then maybe you pick up and you move on or maybe your kids move on further. Um, so it would have taken, you know, assuming, let's just assume best case scenario that they knew where they wanted to go and they were on their track to get there. Uh, it still would have, I think, taken them decades to be able to gather the supplies in order to make the journey. This was not a trivial journey. Um, and I don't think that's how it happened. I think it took considerably longer probably a century or two at least, just to make that, just to make that um, movement. 
In addition to the mastodon bones and other animal bones that were uncovered at this location, uh, scientists are also discovered spear points, or Clovis points as they're called, for, the, for Clovis, New Mexico, where they were first discovered. These spear points indicate that the animals buried here were actually hunted and likely butchered at this location. The spear points, or Clovis points as they're called, from Clovis, New Mexico, were found here together with mastodon bones and in some cases in contact with mastodon bones, confirming that this was a hunting uh, location and not simply a random uh, coincidence. These Clovis points were commonly formed uh, from chert, which is a hard and uh, hard rock that fractures and makes a nice sharp uh, tip. So very useful for uh, tool formation and for making weapons such as these spearheads and arrowheads. Now there's very little known about the Clovis culture. There are no campsites. There's very little archeological evidence of them. They appear to have had uh, short-lived campsites and probably moved fairly frequently. Now this is interesting when we think about biblical history. According to the Bible, the human population was reduced to a single family at the flood of Noah's day. Noah and his sons then multiplied and spread throughout the earth over the ensuing centuries. Among conventional anthropologies uh, who believe that um, the, the Americas were settled more than 10,000 years ago over a process that took probably thousands of years, um, they would say there's basically two ways two possible routes to get into North America from uh, the Alaska area. And one route would be overland, uh, and that would require the melting of the ice sheets and forming of a corridor down into the interior of North America. And the other possibility is they came down the coast. The interior one, the interior route, is usually the one you hear about, but there are always those guys sort of off to the side going, you know, they could have come down the coast. I tend to think they would have come down the coast. The coastline makes a lot of sense to me. You can find rivers providing you with fresh water. There's plenty to eat. The sea provides lots of good stuff to eat. Um, and other resources, uh, skins for clothing and shelter and so forth. So it would, it, it would make sense to me that the people would predominantly be moving down the coast, perhaps and only later coming down through the, uh, the land corridor. What we do see is a pattern of rapid human expansion, exploration, migration, and invasion. This is consistent with the biblical account of the dispersion at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, when God judged post-flood humanity by confusing their languages, causing them to scatter and spread to the farthest reaches of the post-flood world. The model that I have presented can account for a rapid ice age of, of 700 years total. The flood produced the conditions that did the uh, caused the climate change after the flood. And therefore the flood was a, is a real event. There's lots of evidence for the flood out there. With the flood being real, that indicates that Genesis 1 to 11 is real. The history of Genesis 1 to 11 is real. And this also indicates that the whole Bible can be trusted. The history can be trusted and the spiritual concepts that it teaches can be trusted. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks of the world that was, the world that then was, being overflowed with water and perishing. The Bible's account of the flood is of a global reshaping of the earth, wiping out both man and animals, 
and giving the earth a fresh start. For me, the reality of the flood, understanding that the flood is a real event. It's, it's not just a children's storybook, um, uh, you know, fairy tale. It's, it's, it's not a myth. It's reality. And we can actually go out and see evidence of the flood in the world around us, in the rocks and in, in the fossils. That, to me, is immensely powerful because it confronts us with the reality of our own sin and our own need of salvation in Christ. And so for me, that that's the most important um, message of the flood, I guess, for, for all of us uh, and, and for the world in which we live, uh, that we, we need to flee to Christ for salvation, just as Noah found refuge in the ark. This concludes our tour of Mastodon's State Assort site. The information found in the visitor center and the discoveries made here at this location are fascinating. But most importantly, they tell a story of an earth that's been reshaped and of animals and humans reestablishing themselves amidst a changing environment and a devastated planet in the aftermath of God's judgment at the time of the flood of Noah. I study God's creation in part because I have a lot of questions. I watch, you know, Nova specials, I read National Geographic, I look at scientific journals and so forth, and I see a story of the origin of humanity that's very different from what I read in the Bible. And, you know, it makes me wonder, well, how does, this, how does this fit together? I keep finding that if you view the data of science in a certain way, and if you view the scriptures in the correct way, they fit together like puzzle pieces. It's amazing. And it keeps happening. This isn't just one time. This is over and over again. It makes me think that I'm on the right track. It encourages my faith. It makes me excited to think about what discoveries are we going to make next. So for me, that's what really motivates me in this. It's, 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 it's the thrill of discovering things about God and his creation and being affirmed and encouraged in my walk with Jesus. All right. Well, thank you, Zach and Dan, for, wow, that was fascinating. Um, folks, you can watch that documentary, Missouri's Mastodon Graveyard, on our YouTube channel. Uh, search for Missouri Association for Creation on YouTube. Or you can just go to the link in the show notes. Zach, anything you want to add at this point? Um, I guess the the takeaway from the entire project uh, for me, and as I said, when we talked discussing with Dan, is that you know, we believe that uh, Noah's flood and the accompanying events around that were all historical. And you know, the Bible it refers to the world before the flood as a world that perished. Right. So right. then, by definition, everything in our present world, whether it was formed through Noah's flood, you know, in the terms of the geology and the fossils, or if it was formed in through events following the flood, like the Ice Age, like other post-flood catastrophes, it all fits into that portion of biblical history of that time, of this new world since the flood that we inhabit, we live in. And so it was really cool to get a chance to kind of dig into a local landmark and some local geology and local history and see how it really does tie into the biblical narrative and the biblical framework. And I think that we can find that those connections can be found everywhere you look if you're willing to put in the time, put in the research, you know, think a little creatively, right. you know, pay attention to the Bible's, you know, the details in the scripture, mm -hmm. as well as in the scientific data. And, you know, we can tell compelling stories. It's um, based on the Bible's framework and based on a biblical worldview. Right. And there, and there are other, uh, in the state of Missouri, there are other 
geological sites we can oh, go yes. to as an example. Oh, yes. And you know what, Zach? We'll cover these in, in future podcasts. Absolutely. But uh, the Great Unconformity, which yes. is found at the Grand Canyon, you can also see here in the state of Missouri, It's correct? here in Missouri. We've, we've got the Great Unconformity. Uh, we've got meteor craters, miles in diameter. We've got super volcanoes on the scale of Yellowstone National Park. Uh, it's not maybe quite as visually spectacular today because it's uh, a little more overgrown. Right. But we've got incredible geology and incredible history happening here in the state of Missouri that all connects to the flood and to the events before and afterwards. Awesome. Well, we'll get to that in a future podcast. Uh, in the meantime, I guess that about does it for today. We hope you'll join us next month as we continue this series of conversations and interviews with creation scientists and speakers. We have a lot of exciting content in store for you folks. So if you have any questions or comment, feedback, etc., for us here at the podcast, send them to podcast at missouricreation.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to. You can find all of our episodes and subscription options at our website, missouricreation.com slash podcast. You can also go to our website and find out what we're up to. Uh, we have uh, monthly meetings that you'll find out about. We also, from time to time, have special events. We have zoo tours and all kinds of things. Please visit our website, missouricreation.com. So thank you for being here. I'm Marv Schaefer, and I'd like to leave you with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Catch you next time.